0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the History of the Holocaust podcast. I'm Mr. Hall. So today we are going to be looking at Chapter 4 within our textbook. Uh, So you guys should have already done the notes, um, and then obviously you should probably have the Chapter 4 lecture in front of you titled The Weimar Republic. So what we're going to really focus on today is what happens in Germany now that World War I is over. Germany is blamed for the war. What does it look like as they rebuild? and why then are the conditions for the nazi party to rise during this time period why are those conditions laid out uh, in the weimar republic so we're going to take a look at from the very beginning how does it kind of play out how does it gain its structure and then where are the weaknesses within this republic and how do the nazis and other political parties uh, use and expose those weaknesses to their benefit so, without further ado, uh, we will move on into Weimar Germany. When we start talking about Weimar Germany, we, we really just have to start talking with the understanding that Weimar Germany was a failure. It, it was a failure in, it, in the way it was created, it, the way that it played out. Uh, it was never going to work. And really because the way it was designed, it never had a chance to move forward and be a successful republic. We can kind of blame the design a lot on the, not just the people who wrote it and, and tried to put into practice this republic, but also just on the chaos of the moment. So when we look at this, this first question that I have for you on, on this first slide, what were some of the major issues with the creation of the Weimar Republic? You guys should be familiar with some of this so far. You should definitely be familiar with the fact that this is trying to be created, this country, this government structure is trying to be created simultaneously while the interim government of Germany is negotiating the terms for the Treaty of Versailles. Germany is just in a complete hellscape right now. They've lost World War I. They have lost millions and millions of German lives. They have lost what would be the equivalency today of trillions of dollars in their GDP, in their economy. Like somewhere around 25% of all physical land within Germany has been completely destroyed or wiped out. So the government of Germany is just chaos the The last government has fallen. The Emperor the Kaiser Kaiser Wilhelm, has been forced to abdicate the throne uh, at the same time. the countries of the United States and Britain and France are really kind of holding Germany and what's left of the skeletal structure of the country at gunpoint and forcing them to sign this very damaging treaty that's going to become the Treaty of Versailles. So when we look at like what were some of the major issues with the creation of this republic, they just they weren't. They weren't trying to create this republic in a calm time period. They weren't trying to create this republic, um, you know. Even even in a time period like the United States, like you look in the United States in 1789, we're, we're years past the Revolutionary War. We're we're yeah, we've got a few issues, and obviously that's that's why the Articles of of Confederation didn't work. But we're not in the complete anarchy that is essentially the Weimar Republic when they're trying to create their form of government. So right off the bat, they're, they're, sh- they're starting from behind. And some of the biggest issues with this then, with the structure that they're going to maintain, is they're gonna try to keep a lot of the old stuff. You now, that makes sense. If, if you're a country that's gotta, you gotta suddenly start rebuilding after war, you're in chaos, you, you wanna hit the ground running. So if there were certain structures, why not keep them? They're gonna keep some of the old bureaucratic structures. Um, you know, some are kind of like the different departments. These are departments like you and I would think of today, like the Department of Education or the Department of Energy. They're going to keep a lot of the structures of those things similar to the way that they were even under the Kaiser. But they're going to try to change the way that representation is given within the government. And that becomes the big issue, that you get these institutionalists. You're carrying over the people who worked in these departments, who ran these departments, practiced these departments, had so much authority under these departments, under the Kaiser, and now all of a sudden a new form of government with a bunch of different viewpoints is coming in and trying to tell these people to, to, you're going to keep your job, you're going to keep running it the same way, but you're actually going to be running it the way we want you to. So there's a lot of pushback. This is not a situation that's, that's ripe for compromise, that's ready for people to kind of look at the other side and consider their points of view and, and be ready to move forward. Everybody's kind of pointing the finger at each other for things. And so when the government continues to be uh, just halted and petrified, um, when the government's not able to continue to, 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 to create new policies or to try to solve problems, these problems just pile up, and the arguing and the finger pointing gets worse and worse, and the likelihood of being able to come together and acknowledge each other's faults, but the good points of each other's arguments—basically, the, the the ability to come together and compromise—is further getting is getting further and further um, in this government as well. So, right off the bat, the Weimar government was not made to govern. Uh, if you could put it as plain and simple: it was not made to govern. And that then brings us into the other social and economic problems that are going to come out of the signing of the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles. We're going to sign this Uh, very shortly after the Weimar government is going to actually be established. Again, there's kind of that debate back and forth of what is that government going to look like? You know, there was was a minor uprising of the Communist Party, actually, right before the Weimar Republic was established. There were a lot of people in Germany, roughly about 25 to 30 percent of the population was vehemently behind some form of communist style government, actually very similar to what had happened in Russia several years before. Um, But like I said, it was the republic that ends up winning out. And with that, it's the Republic that now has to sign the Treaty of Versailles. So when we look at, like, what, what is it that the Germans are thinking when they're signing this treaty? When, when they're signing, you know, the armistice, why are they willing to do these things? First of all, the Germans are willing to sign the armistice, you know, the, 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 the piece of paper that prevents fighting from taking place in the war. They're willing to sign the armistice because they're done. They've been fighting this war for years. They thought for years that this war was going to be quick, and it wasn't. They've been lied to by their their politicians and their military leaders. They have lost millions of lives. Uh, Over one third of the German population has died in this war. They're in the midst of a global pandemic. The pandemic of 1918 is happening at this point in time. So millions of other people are getting sick and dying from a disease on top of all this. This is not a time that you should be fighting a war and the Germans are having it or have had it, they're done. They don't wanna fight anymore. And so they're willing to prevent uh, any more fighting moving forward and they're willing to sign that armistice. The Germans are kind of hoping that by signing the armistice as well at this point, that they might have a little bit more leverage over some other things um, in the negotiation of the treaty. But that really turns out to be uh, incorrect. Like I said, the, the the interim government, because the government of Germany has now collapsed, the Kaisers had to step down. There's an interim government that doesn't really have the authority of the people. The people who were then appointed by this interim government to do the actual negotiations, you know, to sit face-to-face with the president of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, and, and Neville Chamberlain, and so on, and Britain, those individuals that Germany sent were kind of idiots. They were just bad negotiators as well. Um, and so when you see all of these problems, that the weakness of the, the kind of incoming temporary government, the, the fact that people who are being pushed out of the government are basically blowing stuff up as they're leaving the door, uh, all of these things are going to put Germany at a severe disadvantage when negotiating the Treaty of Versailles. And so by the time the treaty is signed, with all of its problems for Germany that you guys are aware of, it really seems like a massive stab in the back to the Germans. And who do the Germans have to blame for this? Yeah, yeah, they can blame the French. They can blame the British. But at the same time, they had a German delegation there to negotiate for them. And that German delegation failed them. So part of this blame is on themselves as well. This is not just a blame that they can point at another country. Part of it is theirs as well. And this brings up all kinds of social and economic problems. It it exasperates them even further. This is a country that is trying to rebuild immediately after war. It's trying to rebuild an ailing economy. An economy that just went through a terrible war is now in the midst of a massive depression because of the war effort itself, because of the, the the restraints placed on the economy from the Treaty of Versailles, because of the fact that there's a massive pandemic, and you guys know how a pandemic affects things economically, you're living through it. You know, businesses had to shut down. People couldn't go to work. People are dying in the streets. Even if the businesses wanted to open up, people are too sick to actually go or they don't feel safe enough to go and purchase goods. So the economy is coming to a complete halt. And when there's economic problems and people are strained... to have money in their purse and in their wallets and to be able to purchase goods for their family. They begin to point the finger and create other blames. So this social strife really increases. And they then turn to the political sphere. Maybe our government can help solve some of these problems. But as I've told you, this government is so gridlocked, they're not going to solve anything they become very radical groups, very far left-wing groups, very far white, right-wing groups that start to get louder voices. These radical groups tend to have an advantage in times of political deadlock. When the average politicians have kind of hit a point where either the political system no longer allows for compromise, like the structure itself no longer forces compromise, or the political system, such as like the the members of the parties, the members of the government generally get to a point where they're no longer willing to compromise and work with each other, that actually allows for the radical ends of the spectrum to have a larger and louder voice. Because now all of a sudden, those people actually, those uncompromising individuals, those uncompromising viewpoints, become almost the the last oasis for people, the last hope to get some kind of change, because clearly those in the middle are not able to accomplish anything. So you have these huge, loud, boisterous groups that are gonna pop up both on the left side and on the right. And I think we're aware which side's gonna win in this discussion, but you not only see the groups pop up in the political sphere, you start to see radical groups outside of the political sphere within society themselves these groups become tied to politics you know they're not entirely separate of each other but we start to see militias forming for example you know the nazis did use a group known as the free corps uh this is a group of just average militia members you know just average citizens with guns who come together you know these a lot of these are people who served in the military during the war a lot of these are like aristocratic individuals who held a certain status in society and now all of a sudden their status is disappearing and, and they're blaming other groups because of that. Obviously, we know their status is disappearing just because the world's in chaos. But these people feel threatened. And they start to create basically militias within Germany that are willing to go and defend these radical groups and these radical protests and these radical uh, movements. So these militia members and these militia movements become tied with the radical political movements as well. Um, So not only do you have politicians making speeches and and riling people up emotionally, you then have groups of individuals who are unassociated with a military or unassociated with a a government police force. These are just groups of young men walking around with guns, basically telling you you need to follow this political party. When when chaos erupts and a vacuum is left for power, something's going to fill that vacuum. And because the German government was so gridlocked and unable to agree on anything or to solve people's problems, sometimes it's the radical groups that step up and they seem like they can solve your problem. So not only do we start to see these radical groups, we start to see violence in the streets becoming violent protests. We start to see militia members popping up all over the place trying to enforce their will almost militarily. That adds then to certain political movements that seem to be responding to the strife and the anger of the people? And what group seems to be responding better than the National Socialist Democratic People's Party? In other words, than what is going to be known as the Nazi Party. This is where we start to see some of their first pamphlets, uh, pamphlets that are you know, led, pamphlets that are written when uh, Adolf Hitler is, is coming into the Nazi party and moving up into power, and we start to see the party's ideas formulating. Now, you have to understand the Nazis are not about killing Jews. As much as that sounds weird for me to say right now, and it's a bit of a shock, that's not their political focus. Yes, that's something that they want to do. It's it's, it's on the back burner. But there are so many other things that they speak to the people about. There's so many other messages that they want to get across to the people. And these are messages that you and I would think are completely normal. And probably that you and I may even agree with if we were in similar circumstances. If they're not talking and they're not publicizing about, you know, their Jewish problem that they have and and all these other anti-Semitic messages then they're not on our radar. They're not something that we're going to concern ourselves with, with that individual who's running for office. Or we're going to enjoy their other opinions so much, we are willing to justify and set aside the ones that we see as abhorrent. And so kind of going down through, the first pamphlet that we see come from what is going to be the Nazi Party lays out a few ideas that they have. First of all, you know, just total abrogation for the Versailles Treaty, meaning that just... This pamphlet says that the treaty is the worst thing to ever happen to Germany economically, politically, socially. Basically, all of our fault, all of our problems are the fault of the Treaty of Versailles. Well, that's a simple issue, guys. That's something you and I would agree with. They also want to restore the German colonies. You know, they want to restore, not restoring German colonies, overseas colonies. That wouldn't just increase, you know, obviously, their economic abilities. That would increase their standing globally. That would make them seem like a tougher country to others. Again, something you and I could potentially agree with. They formulated demands for the supremacy of the state. One of the things the Nazi party is trying to argue is that, hey, there's so much gridlock. There's so many problems because we tried to have too much democracy. We tried to have too many opinions from people. And look where that got us. We have so many opinions. We can't solve any problems. We can't compromise anymore. We need to stop focusing on you, the individual, and we need to start focusing on us, the culture and the country, that we should have a government that has more power and authority because that power and authority can at least be used then, where the current government we have right now does not have enough power and authority. That's a very, very convincing message. When you have just spent the last four or five years in a serious depression with a massive pandemic going around, you haven't collected a paycheck in almost two years, you and your family are starving and out on the streets, that, that's, that's something that you can jump in on if the government is going to at least be able to help you. Why not give them more power then? They're also going to oppose what they see as unearned income this goes back to like the stock market collapse. There's a, there becomes a lot of talk about how the stock market collapsed because of inflated interest rates and all kinds of other things. So this concept of what we think of unearned income, collecting interest, um, per, uh, stores that sell products for, you know, the, an obnoxious amount of money more than it, it costs to produce them. You know, getting that income that you didn't have to physically earn uh, is, is targeted as, as immoral as antithetical to our, our current civilization. And again, guys, that's, if you're starving and you're seeing bankers that are still doing okay, these are messages calling to you. They're also going to oppose foreigners, foreign influence, you know, they're kind of saying the Jews, um, and they're going to argue that the foreigners are the ones that caused their problems. It wasn't us that wanted the Treaty of Versailles. It was the French, it was the Germans, it was the Americans that forced the treaty down our throats. It's the Americans and the British and the French that are still not trading with us. It's, you know, the Russians and and the Jews that are, are holding our economy down and not letting it to reopen. It's not what we're doing. It's what other people are doing. They also then, yeah, they're going to argue Jews could not be German citizens. They're also going to argue that all recent Jewish immigrants are to be returned to the country they came from. Now, those might start to get a little bit more controversial. But if I'm focusing on economic messages and I'm focusing on, I'm blaming France and Britain for our problems. And I'm not talking to you about the fact that I don't think Jewish people should be German citizens. You're not going to know that's the way that I think. You're not going to focus on that either. Or you might just say to yourself, yeah, he might not think they should be citizens, but he could never do that. At least he's talking about fixing the economy. I don't even have to worry about him taking away Jewish citizenship. That's not possible. You know, it's not possible in democracy until it is. Uh, but that's, that's something I want you guys to really think about. I mean, think about even political messages that you hear today. We each, from either side of the political spectrum, we pick up on the messages we want to hear. We pick up on the things that we want to be right. And we also do a pretty good job of, you know, just, we also do a pretty good job of, closing our minds to anything that we see as antithetical to our problems. We kind of shut ourselves off um, to any information that we might deem, like, ah, well, you know, at least he's willing to do this. At least he's willing to solve these problems. you know We're very good at focusing on what we want to focus on. So when you see these types of pamphlets, this kind of information that is being put out, again, they're speaking to issues that are relevant issues and, and not the issues that obviously we today would associate with the Nazi party with all of that, let's take a look at Hitler himself and, and how did Hitler come up to power? Um, you know, your book's going to go into more detail about Hitler's upbringing. He had a very difficult life. Uh, he had a very odd upbringing himself. He is, uh, you know, his father either leaves or, or dies at a young age. He's, he's given, uh, him and his family are given welfare benefits. Um Obviously, you know, Hitler's going to join the, the German military. He attempts to join the German military in a different position, but he's too small and weak um, to actually be given the position that he was wanted. Uh, you know, we obviously we know the story of him failing, trying to get into art school later on. He was a huge problem in school. Uh, he's always ca- causing um, social issues with people. A brilliant individual, very smart in school, but always causing um issues, had anger management problems, was really kind of seen as a social outcast, had a lot of kind of personal social anxiety about him. So he's this perfect candidate for the, you know, the racist views that I talked about in a previous podcast. And so as he gets older, uh, there, and, and he's starting to come into power, you know, after after World War I, he's looking for a job, and he joins the German government, where the, Ger- the new Weimar German government is going to task Adolf Hitler with actually trying to infiltrate the Nazi party and to kind of learn about them and keep an eye on them to make sure that they don't become one of these radical groups looking to overthrow the government. Well, that backfired on the Germans because Hitler ended up subscribing to those opinions a little too well. And obviously Hitler is going to become a very adamant member of the party and is going to begin to rise up through the ranks of the party. He's going to start to get a lot of support through it. Now, Hitler... Hitler doesn't really bring a lot of new ideas to the party, um, but he does kind of uh, help to formulate the way that things are going to play out. One of the things that Hitler becomes very obsessed about is he wants some type of overthrow of the German government. He wants to collapse the German government, and he feels like the only way to establish a true Nazi government that is going to help the people is to have a, a, this, this violent revolution and overthrow the German Reichstag. And so we see his first attempt at this uh, on November 9th in 1923. And this is an event known as the Beer Hall Pooch. Basically what he does, he goes into a bar with a bunch of other Nazis behind him, gets up on the table and tries to say, hey, we are going to overthrow the German government. Who's with me? A riot ensues. Uh, eventually Hitler is going to be arrested by the public for obviously trying to overthrow the government. He is going to be put in jail. Now, While he is put in jail, while he's in jail, this is where he writes the majority of what is going to be known as Mein Kampf, Hitler's autobiography. You know, Mein Kampf translates from German into my struggle. This book is going to become a bestseller. But it's also in jail where Hitler starts to realize that this government his his version of the government is not going to happen with an overthrow, and that they need to start focusing more on politics. they need to get their message to the people and convince the people to give them that power and authority so mein Kampf is a two part book here obviously it's an autobiography it gives a little bit of a background about Hitler. We as historians, you know, we have to really take everything that he, t- he says with a grain of salt about his background. Um, we do know he lies a lot about his background. He certainly over-exaggerates a lot of things about himself and his background. But it's also a book of propaganda. This is a book of a call to the people. This is a message to the people, to, a call to action for them to come out and vote for the Nazi party, to, to, to fight against the tyranny of the Jew and the German government. Uh, so all of this you know, propaganda that's, that's being pushed in this book is a great example of how Hitler is he's moving, from a, he's moving from a goal of a violent overthrow into a goal of, of taking over the government through the electoral process. And that's what's going to make him dangerous because that is the way that is going to make him successful. When he makes this transition into using the political process against itself, that's exactly how Adolf Hitler is going to come to power. And so that's what we will look at in the next unit. Uh, your next unit and next two chapters will talk specifically about like the process of him coming to power. What does that look like step-by-step? Step? And then once obviously they're in power, how quickly do they kind of divulge into the anti-Jewish legislation and so on? But even before that, um, you know, when we look at the elections between 1929 and 1933, These are elections still happening within Weimar Germany. During these elections, there's a lot of chaos going on. And the Weimar Republic is what we call a parliamentarian democracy. For those of you who are at home, I'll try to find a YouTube video for you guys to watch or something. You might need to do a little bit more research into a parliamentary democracy. Those in class, I I will go over it. I just, I don't have the time to do that here. But, in a parliamentarian democracy, it allows for a lot more political parties to have a voice. Uh, it's not like our system where we have a two party system, but it allows for a lot more political parties to be on the, to be on the ballot and to, to successfully hold seats. So for example, where we have two political parties and both of those political parties keep going back and forth to try to maintain a, a majority or over 50% of the vote in the government. Uh, in, in Weimar Germany, they had between 1929 and 1933 on average between 15 to 20 political parties serving in their government. None of those parties was ever close to having a majority and they always need a majority to still pass anything. Well, that's not uncommon in a parliamentary democracy for one political party to not have a majority. What usually happens is that a political party would work with another party that's relatively close to them on the spectrum. You know, the democratic socialists would work with the Liberal Party or the you know conservative party might work with the uh, Democratic Christian Party or something.. They try to align themselves uh, on the spectrum with each other uh, to the point where maybe not one political party has a majority, but a couple of political parties working together might have a majority. Well, from 1929 to 1933, there was never. A coalition. There was never a time where the parties were willing to come together to work together. So for four whole years, the government of Germany essentially never passed any laws, never accomplished anything, uh, because they were never a functioning government. They never had enough support across any of the parties to actually be able to pass any form of law. Le- now, though, because of that. Um you you do see people get very angry at the system that there's too many political parties, and that's why people begin to really question democracy in Germany. If this is what democracy is, and this is their first experience with democracy, this is Germany's first experience with a republic, and if this is what democracy is, well hell, I don't want it. they, sh- they a lot of people start to argue that democracy's too slow it doesn't solve the problems that we have we need you know, so what if somebody's an authoritarian or there's only one person making a decision at least a decision is being made so when we see the nazi party gain what is a plurality you know they're going to have like 30% of the seats they're able to create a coalition government with the german conservative party you know that's two parties coming together that would put them over 50% of the vote and the Germans are willing to do this because they're, they're willing to partner with the Nazis because they're just so tired of not having a coalition, of not passing anything. This is where we're going to kind of leave off, but we have to talk about that Nazi anti-Semitism. We know it's coming. I know we're not really going to get into the laws that are passed, but now that they're starting to get into power, the the Nazis, we, we have to understand, they didn't bring anything new to anti-Semitism. The Nazis didn't invent anything new about anti-Semitism and about racism. They're they're just using all forms of racism that have been seen around the world. They're just kind of this melting pot of crap, this melting pot of 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 ignorance. They're bringing all of these stupid theories together. Uh, You know, all of these theories of the international world, the international world Jewry, or the Aryan blood theories, or All of these different topics that your book talks about, we'll get into in other discussions, Um, but they're now starting to not only legitimize those theories in public, but actively promoting them. And that's where we're going to start getting the characterization of what we know today as being the Nazi party. Well, guys, though, that's all that I have. You know, Weimar Germany is a very short time period. It's complicated and it's not complicated at the same time. Um, it's not complicated in the fact that it just didn't work and it was never gonna work. And the reason that it was never gonna work is because it was too complicated of a system. There was way too much going on, way too many problems just in society when they were trying to build this government. And then the government structure that they ended up with was never gonna be able to solve any of these problems either. So it, it's just chaos, complete and total chaos and a power vacuum within Germany. And unfortunately, in those power vacuums, the loudest voices are the ones that are going to win out, whether those voices are correct or not. And generally, the loudest voices tend to be the more radical voices. So uh, moving forward, we're actually, I know this is the end of our unit here. We're not going to jump right into chapter five in your textbook yet. We're going to hold off on the textbook because now we're going to move into the book on um, the war against the Jews. Uh, I also have a documentary to show you guys where we're going to look at the American eugenics program. Uh, It's a documentary by the PBC and Frontline. A fantastic documentary. I think you guys will really like it. Uh, And then we will read through the war against the Jews, uh, and then that will be our project for this unit. But other than that, uh, if you guys have any questions about any of this information or anything else, as always, get a hold of me. Uh, And until then, uh, keep your name out of the paper, except for doing good deeds.